You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome back to season three of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name. Limiting growth on a finite planet is my game. In the Christmas special for PGAP, I shared some of my reflections working within intentional community projects in Melbourne. Many of these projects naturally gravitated toward gardening or produce in some form or another, in part because this was what I enjoyed most doing, in part because food sovereignty and autonomy is a very tangible form of bucking a system that also gratifies the olfactory senses. Since moving to Albany, WA, I have recently joined up with a local community garden and I'm also looking forward to meeting with a few growers and permaculturists who have come across online. It seems like old habits die hard. Within the Melbourne anarchist communities, there was often a debate around whether what we were doing was a lifestyleist or systemic change. Backyard permaculture and homesteading was often seen as the big end of the lifestyleism spectrum, whereas political protests and disruption were seen on the other side of the systemic change end of the spectrum. In reality, most of what we were doing lay somewhere in between, but like all good dichotomies, this often resulted in some lengthy discussions and sometimes even divisions. Back in 2015, I co-founded Population Permaculture and Planning, now known as Town Planning Rebellion. One of the intentions of PPP back in the day was to bring permaculture principles beyond the garden or farm, so to speak, and apply these principles to a broader scale of urban planning and community design. Permaculture has always been a movement in which many have insisted can be applied to each and all aspects of our lives. However, my observations have been that in day-to-day -day practice, permaculture rarely extends beyond the farm, garden or homestead. I've sometimes wondered whether the attempt to apply permaculture beyond this realm becomes a case of overstretching the metaphor to the extent that it sometimes borders platitude. Nevertheless, as a movement, I've always seen permaculture as pretty resilient and flexible enough to be applicable to many food growers worldwide without being over-prescriptive or divisive. <laughs> Up until recently, that is. Permaculture is now a big enough movement in which sub-movements have now evolved, and like everything else, recent world events have created divisions and made rivals between former allies. So, dear listener, how does permaculture really fit into the broader social change movements? Can it go hand-in-hand hand with activism toward a post-growth society? It has been a huge relief to find out that someone has written a whole book answering some of these pressing questions. Terry Lay is the author of The Politics of Permaculture, a book that travels all across the world from Australia to Zimbabwe to interview a wide range of permaculturists on their very opinions on this very issue. Terry and I actually crossed paths at several times during the Melbourne years as we were both involved in some of the same community projects. So I was thrilled to hear that Terry had written a book on the very questions percolating in my mind, and furthermore, he was around to be interviewed. I'd love to say that this is all one big lucky coincidence, but the truth of the matter is that the Anarchist Leaning Rebels are more of a niche community than I might like to sometimes think. So, it would be just about sacrilege to play a permaculture-themed episode without playing something from a formidable vegetable. I used to be a formidable vegetable groupie back when we both lived around Melbourne. Indeed, they played at one of the houses in which I was involved in an urban gardening project. In another moment of serendipity, Charlie from Formidable Vegetable has also moved back to WA and now we are virtually neighbours. It is all shenanigans, I tells you. Anyway, after the interview with Terry, I will be playing the formidable vegetable track Climate Movement as it perfectly encapsulates the themes on this interview. But until then, please enjoy my interview with Terry Lay on the politics of permaculture. 
Welcome back to PGAP. I'm talking to Terry Lay. Now we've met a couple of times in Melbourne. <laughs> so um, Terry, tell us about yourself, what you do, what drives you and your passions. I don't believe the politics of permaculture is the first book you've written in the field. No, um, this is true. I uh, have been uh, a sociologist and academic for decades and decades. I'm now retired since 2000, end of 2016, came to Melbourne in 2017. Uh, in terms of passions, I, yeah, I'm passionate about permaculture and very interested in that. Music as well and political activism and so on. In terms of previous publications, I've written uh, quite a lot of articles, um, you know, in journals, but as well as that, I've done four books where the first one was self-published. It was on permaculture strategy for the South African villages, and it's still available on my website. Then since then, I've done three books, pretty rapid succession. The first one was on humanist realism for sociologists, which is a sort of social theory book, which also looks at gender and classes as structures of you know, in different society, social contexts and how sociologists approach that. That was the 2017, next one completed in 2018, but it's called Food Security for Rural Africa, Feeding the Farmers First. It's about the way uh, lots of projects in Africa don't actually work and, and, and tries to examine what's going wrong and also to look at the, the few projects which do work and, uh, and explain why, why they're working. So it's written, really written to, the, to aid workers and people working in the global south on, on rural poverty or poverty in general to look at, at project design. But it's a, a clearly got a very strong um, emphasis on permaculture as part of a, a viable aid strategy. Now, you might not realise this, Terry, but you've been very instrumental in PGAP history because it was through you in Melbourne that I first met with Anitra Nelson. And she's been, uh, well, she's one of my most favourite activists in the whole universe. <laughs> and she's one of my favourite PGAP interviews um, oh, back when we first started last year. So um, big thank you to Terry. <laughs> on <laughs> behalf of myself and the listeners. <laughs> well, she's been a very uh, helpful friend in, in many ways and quite instrumental in, in this recent book on permaculture. So reading uh, your book, The Politics of Permaculture, was a great educational experience for me of how permaculture began and where it now sits within the broader environmental and social change movements. So what inspired you, Terry, to write the book? <laughs> and I'm just asking this as coming from someone who rips my hair out from writing a six-page discussion paper the other week. Um, do you still have track changes inspired nightmares to this day like <laughs> I do? <laughs> um, not really. I, I love writing. Um, basically, even in, in lockdown, I, I, it's been great to have something to do like that. Yeah, the way I got into the book was it's weird because, you know, like I – almost swore that I would never write about the permaculture movement and never behave as a sociologist in the movement. At the same time, obviously, I did a lot of informal participant observation of the permaculture movement that's informed this book. But like Anitra was uh, is like the editor for, for Pluto Press of a sort of series on social movements um, challenging capitalism. She suggested to me, I mean, she knew of my interest in permaculture and writing in that field, and th that I might like to write something about permaculture. And then I started it in to late 2019. That's right. Yeah. I started doing the interviews for it. I, I also had some interviews that I used from my African research, which was uh, most recently in 2014. But my sister and I did a lot of interviews on the Chukuk project for the film. And of course, there's a lot of discussion of permaculture in those interviews. So I, I decided to use that material, which I th was certainly really helpful in the book. The politics of permaculture is very well researched, um, in my opinion, <laughs> including field research where you interview people from almost all corners of the globe. And although this is probably difficult to sum up in one question, how did you find the interview process? Did you notice any common unifying threads in the interviews, any major differences or anything that surprised you and caught you unexpected? Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed the interviews very much. It was sometimes a bit tricky to get the Zoom to work or whatever when I was doing interviews with the United States people or or the UK people or, or Norway or whatever. But but at the same time, you know, they were totally fascinating interviews. I just loved doing them. It was really interesting. If I had to say what I was most surprised about overall, it would have been the coherence of permaculture as a movement. 
the fact that um, people from such diverse backgrounds, including developing country, let's say the global south, had a very similar um, analysis of permaculture. Not necessarily, I mean, on the one hand, they were, sim- they were similar in every way, you know, like in the sense of defining permaculture in similar ways. And then in terms of practice, what were they actually doing and how they applied permaculture in their own practice, you know, as, as pro, in project design or in, in teaching or in backyard gardening or community-supported agriculture or whatever, that, that, that their understanding of how, what permaculture meant and how they used it was very similar. I suppose that's the most a fascinating thing to come out of it, the coherence of permaculture, despite the fact that permaculture is not you know, backed up by any of the usual sanctions to provide, to produce uniformity, like, you know, like economic sanctions. There's nothing forcing people to be involved in permaculture or monitoring their behaviour and removing from them from a job if they don't get it right. And none of that is going on. And yet, so I, I was inspired by that. It's a real testament to the efficacy of voluntary networking and organisation which is obviously, you know, a huge theme for me in terms of my political analysis overall. So this book is also a great travelogue for how permaculture is expressed all over the world and perhaps maybe a comfort escapism for those still stuck in lockdown in Australia's eastern states. (laughs) For example, I was really fascinated to read about uh, Chikukwa in Zimbabwe so tell me a little bit more about Chikukwa, perhaps as an example of how permaculture, agriculture principles are one solution to environmental um, crop insecurities and other pressures for many communities in the global south. Yeah, well, um, the, 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 the permaculture project started in the early 90s in, in a far part of Zimbabwe, right on the border with Mozambique. And it's like uh, at that time, the clan territory had been kind of shrunk by gov- government taking over various parts of their territory for forests and things like that and they and they ended up with a very typical typical problem of this part of africa that w- when you first clear the forest you get really good crops of maize because the fertility of the soil is, is really excellent and so on but as years go by you get less and less fertility and also by clearing a slope, you end up with massive problems of soil erosion. The other thing that happened was that the water sources that they used on the hillsides also dried up because the springs were not getting recharged because the water was just running off during the rainy season and vanishing. Now, Ellie and Oli um, were two German students initially who came to support the revolution in Zimbabwe, the anti-colonial revolution. And they, by, by this time, they'd been working in the high school system and the pri- primary school system, etc., for, for a number of years or even decades in Zimbabwe. And they ended up coming to Chikukwa for various reasons, and the chief gave them a piece of land and, and welcomed them and so on. So they were sort of established in that community. They were living in, in the village itself. I mean, this is like, from a point of view of, of an aid project, this is quite unique, really. Ellie decided to set up a, a, a little gardening group with her neighbours. They came together and and she was uh, in, interested in permaculture because of John Wilson had set up the Thumbijanai organisation in Zimbabwe uh, to do permaculture. And then they invited him and another a colleague out to come to, to them to give them workshops on, on permaculture design and to talk to them about the problems they were having of soil erosion, soil, crop fertility, and, and et cetera, et cetera. They gradually involved the whole community and they were very, they ended up by setting up different, what they called departments of their local community NGO. And these departments were things like, you know, the preschool, women's groups, and the permaculture group, which was like the central pillar of their organization. And all of these groups acted like democratically within each within each sub village of the of the of the clan. They would meet and and have an, an open day where they elected an executive for for that particular club or department, and then that would refer issues that they had back to the central central group. And so the kind of permaculture design that they were setting up was basically swales on the hillside and contour buns to stop the water coming down replanting the tops of the hills and the ridges, ridge lines with really thick, quick growing trees and protecting the gullies from cattle by fencing the gullies. This is sort of like the basic infrastructure stuff. And then within each household, there's a design which fits a particular um, location of the house, but it's basically uh, the water runs from, from the flat area around the house down the slope into pits where they have bananas and things like that. Then there's a sort of orchard and vegetable garden 
and that the cropping fields are sort of surrounding this sort of uh, centrally cultivated area. So it was a classic permaculture design and really effective. And if you look at the pictures of before and after pictures, there is just no comparison of what the site looked like. It was just a hu- hugely changed by, no, I got there in 2010 first, that's when we did the film, and then I came back in 2014. By that period, the landscape had been completely changed by permaculture. And it had become a sort of folk science of that community. So if you ask people about permaculture design, they could talk to you about it like anybody. It was just amazing, really. And just goes to demonstrate how much more universal permaculture is than I think, you know, a lot of us in Australia perhaps might give it credit for. So that was um, really great to read about. Yeah, I, th- I think I think people underestimate the extent to which permaculture has been effective in aid work and, and you know it's like in in refugee camps in 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 Aceh after the tsunami in in islands of Indonesia in the Philippines in Vietnam I mean there are countless Australians and other people from the UK and the United States have worked in um, in the global south with permaculture and I think it's been very effective I mean in the case of the Chukuku project I think it's really important to to say that most projects in Africa try and turn smallholder farmers into entrepreneurs of a small farming business, and that almost never works. The Chikuka project was different in that it stressed food security for households, household food provision, and, and that was very um, effective indeed. Yes, yeah, so, you know, I'm going to continue to be full of glowing praises for your book. I hope you don't <laughs> mind, Terry. <laughs> yeah, I can carry um, You did a great job. Uh, I must say, I've been the neutral observer for most of the book. I'm sure that wasn't an easy task. So I really appreciate in the last chapter when you finally unleashed uh, uh, some of your own opinions. Fortunately for this interview, I really resonate with your points of view, which (laughs) will make the interview a lot less awkward. I I guess from that, I'd actually like to take some of the opportunity for the rest of the interview, if you'd indulge me, to kind of bounce off some of my own experiences with the permaculture intentional community community movements and bring some of these ideas out with you but firstly an open-ended question where you see permaculture place within the lattice work of the steady state and degrowth movements um, like particularly for any pgap listener who's more interested in the economic and political form whose ears may be glazing over at yet another episode on permaculture okay yeah well definitely so in terms of, of, you've mentioned steady state first, so I'll start with that. I see permaculture as, as not having a, a kind of defined position in terms of what a post-capitalist society would look like. I mean, I think there are various pointers in, in Mollison's work and also in Holmgren, but I don't think these, these ideas are seen as mandatory or essential for permaculture people. My own analysis is that, that Mollison, in, you know, in his chapters on this, is thinking of a bioregional economy with small, uh, decentralised, uh, in which people control the, the, a local government, and government is very much localised, and, and small ethical businesses and, and voluntary community work contribute to a local economy, almost the same as Ted Trainer's vision. I don't see that as necessarily dominant in the movement at the moment. Instead, I think this, the, the ideas um, coming from the steady state economy movement are probably more, um, slightly more germane to, to where permaculture people are coming from. In terms of the steady state analysis, what that, that term comes from Daly's writing, you know, an Amer- American economist, um, environmentalist. And it basically means that we, you know, we can't continue, continue with uh, GDP growth and economic growth. It's just impossible. And we have to wind back the economy in various ways through various forms of reg- state regulation, national regulation. And accompanying that, we have to redistribute income and wealth more broadly into the community and cut working hours. And I call that the radical reformist vision because, in a sense, it, it retains many of the market economy features of capitalism, but aims to regulate these really stringently through things like cap and trade for resources, regulation of the hours of work, the universal basic income. All of these ideas are really common in various writings and come through in the permaculture people I interviewed. But also, I mean, you you equally find a, a few permaculturists who, who are interested in, in a, an anarchist or socialist solution to these problems and don't see that as in any way inimical to being permaculturists, you know, like, so that's what I mean by it's not, it's not part of the package of like of being a permaculturist is to have a 
firm idea about this. It's much more open than that. Now, when you get to degrowth, it's completely different. Degrowth is like a central plank of permaculture. In David Holmgren's writings, it's expressed as in the term energy descent is used, and lots of permaculture people that I speak to use that term. It's very, very common. And what, what that means is this. We don't think that that renewables can replace fossil fuels in terms of the energy provision that fossil fuels now deliver to, especially to the rich countries, but also in the poor countries. And even more than that, we don't believe that for a whole host of reasons that we continue can continue with the growth economy. We expect degrowth as a, as a consequence of the inability to replace the same you know, kilojoules, if you like, of energy. We're talking about a purely physical quantity. We can't Different permaculture people might talk about different reasons for that, but it's like, for me, I'll talk about things like the storage cost for renewable energy mean that the total cost of renewable energy goes up. We have huge problems with things like plane transport, even ships and heavy diesel trucks and so on. It's very hard to replace that kind of concentrated fossil fuel energy with renewables. And that doesn't mean we're all going to die or anything like that. What it means is that we have to move to an economy which makes much more economic use of energy sources than we have been so far. If you cut energy use and a lot of other things, you, you can't have as much of it. You know, you can look at it two ways. Either you're investing more economic activity in providing energy or you're cutting back in the, econo- the energy you can provide to other kinds of economic activity, you know, like making teapots or whatever, you know, basically anything. So I suspect, Terry, you're not of the belief that we can continue to do uh, conventional agriculture but use electric tractors. <laughs> no, 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 indeed. And, and the transport the transport of agricultural produce from, from the rural areas to cities that are located 200 kilometres away or, th- or in fact, 20,000 kilometres away, oh, maybe that's an exaggeration, but, you know, like, you read a figure like 50% of food for, uh, that Americans eat comes from a, more than 1,000 kilometres away. That's just, you know, there's no way without fossil fuel energy that we can continue that kind of agriculture. So consequently, permaculturists believe that we have to have local agriculture to supply people locally so we're not using a vast amount of energy in transport. It's just nutty. I mean, we don't need it. We can actually feed ourselves where we live and collect everything we need, you know, with donkey carts and bicycle traction and and walking, you know, like it's just ridiculous. And that's another thing that, uh, coming out of that, which is that permacults tend to believe in, in decentralisation of settlements. You know, in, all, in other words, we have to pack in all of the foods, food production that we need, we're going to have to decentralise more into small towns in the countryside greater intersection of the movements. (laughs) Um, Speaking of that, your book does name the unusual place that I've often found permaculture in which its theory is open enough to be applied in broader contexts, but which its practical application tends to be defined by garden or agriculture layouts. Dare I say permaculture indeed retrospurbia have been incredibly successful in bringing gardening back into vogue, into the mainstream consciousness. Mm. However, my observations from my time in the anarchist Permian house share circles in Melbourne is that it becomes so much the image that it becomes a badge that people feel they ought to be in order to fit into the movement. The only problem is that it presupposes that everyone will be naturally into gardening, um, which is not my observation. It seems to be something like gardening that you either love doing it or if you don't or you do it because you have to indeed i saw many people coming into house shares drawn by the permaculture garden only to be turned off when they realize how much work is involved and how much like boring stuff like weeding and maintenance is involved uh, i know you do address this a little bit i think across some of the interviews but is this a weakness of permaculture where it tries to be broad but ultimately presupposes gardening or farming Okay, so so what I found in the interviews is that the way permaculture people define permaculture when they're asked what is permaculture, the dom- the dominant tendency is certainly to embrace the definition of permaculture in David Holmgren's book Principles and Pathways, and which is basically that permaculture is a system of of design for sustainability. I mean, I'm quite critical of that definition in the sense that. Oh, on the one hand, I think it's it's fairly it's still fairly vague, even though da- David Holmgren has tried to tighten it a bit by by insisting on 
the idea of systems theory. I still find it very similar to the whole of the environmentalist movement. And I think that's a disservice to permaculture because it doesn't allow permaculture be, to be different and to recognise the diverse tendencies. And it tends to be, well, you know, like if, if all the environmentalist movement would just embrace permaculture, we wouldn't have a problem. And I don't know, it leads to a sort of degree of unrealism about what's going on in the rest of the environmentalist movement. And then the other thing is that, that as I say, and, and improve really in the book, the practice of permaculture is sustainable agriculture. That is what, you know, with a side salad of settlement design, that's what people are actually doing. And so I think in terms of pedagogy, in terms of introducing people who, to the movement who don't maybe know about it, the, the kind of definition that, that is dominant in permaculture at the moment makes it very difficult for people to understand what permaculture is because when they hear that definition, they think, yeah, isn't that what all environmentalists are saying? I mean, in, in what sense is this different? It becomes a bit mysterious, whereas if they were, if permaculturists were saying, well, we're on about sustainable agriculture and settlement design to a certain, ex you know, to a certain extent settlement design, but mainly about agriculture, uh, it would be much more transparent and we could go, okay, there's that, and then let's also look at some of the aspects of the environmentalism in permaculture which are different you know like the degrowth i was just talking about that is a central plank of permaculture and in a sense something that every environmentalist should be aware of and look into and permaculture is right to say this is distinctive that's fine but if you want to know what's distinctive in terms of permaculture practice and what we're on about most it's about agriculture now coming to your second point right this is about the compulsory nature of agriculture doing gardening you know in terms of anarchist strategy like which would be where i'm coming from i i think it's really important for people to work on the things that they're that they themselves are passionate about if people are about passionate about blockading imark or you know stopping the coal port or or renewable energy and and actually the the, the nuts and bolts of of solar power or something like that I think go for it. You know, I, I don't. I don't think everyone should feel they have to do the same thing in a post-capitalist, sustainable society. I think you know there'd be some people who who would would make gardening and, and farming their passion, certainly a lot, probably a lot more than do at the moment because we wouldn't be using huge combine harvesters and stuff like that. There'd be a lot more labour involved in it, but even so, it probably wouldn't get to more than, you know, 15 to 20% of the population or work hours, if you look at it in terms of work hours. So that's one thing. And the other thing I suppose I think about all of this is it's really about, uh, partly about high household dynamics, you know, like people in a household, you know, like it's very, it's actually very hard to set up a communal household. Our, our upbringing is all in nu nuclear families, even if, if they're sort of split in two or whatever. It's not easy to to work together to recreate some of what we get out of uh, out of our family family life in a community household. And one of the things that that becomes required if you have a number of adults living together is working out how you're going to share the various tasks. And it's never easy. And if everyone, if I mean, if the answer is well, everyone should do permaculture because that's part of our identity is leftists or whatever or environmentalists i think that's a problem you know it might be that some people prefer to cook or do the shopping or sweep the floors or something I, I, it's like tasks have to be allocated according to so if people feel that they're getting an equal share of the tasks but also that they that people are, are allocated tasks that they enjoy doing and that the unfashionable tasks are seen as equally valid, you know, like yeah. um, one of my fondest projects during my time in Melbourne was a Gnomes Urban Gardening Collective, um, where we may have intersected a couple of times, actually. And so, as you'd be also aware, the aim of this was to bridge a gap for people with gardens, but without the human power, and for those who love the garden, but lacked the land, so to speak. So there would be a team of um, people that would meet at the yard to grow the edibles and share the bounties. Um, like anything, it ran into issues, the drop-in and drop-out of loose volunteer arrangements, the surprising administrative load when trying to apply this on scale. And finally, which is, I guess, is most raw for me, so many of the sites where share houses that were share houses 
at the sites that were invariably ripped down to make way for upturned prefab concrete. I mean, this is Melbourne we're talking about. Mm. So there seems to me to be some kind of perversity in the fact that um, a younger generation of left-leaning urbanites are embracing permaculture and yet priced out of secure housing where this can actually be applied realistically. I mean, the amount of houses that I lost with working gardens is... Um, in Melbourne was phenomenal. So what are your observations, Terry? Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. It, it, it is very difficult to do that. I mean, this relates to my chapter in the book on permaculture as prefiguring, uh, as having strategies which attempt to prefigure a post-capitalist or post-industrial economy. And and I just think there's no, there is no easy answer. In, in, in a sense, it's wrong to write off a post-capitalist future in which we have, you know, voluntary working bees and communal ownership and so on in terms of the, the difficulties we're having now in implementing those prefiguring experiments because we situ those prefiguring experiments now are located in the context of a capitalist market economy which dominates life in various ways. And, and I think we just have to be realistic about that and try things out and see if they work and and then maybe they only work for for a year or whatever and then they don't work anymore and and we just go oh yeah okay and just move on you know you have to be ruthless about moving on when it's not working and, and rather than getting into endless fights and and upset and depression because it's not working you know that's a general thing you know like okay so what i'd also say in a more particular way is that um like within prefiguring experiments you've got those that are are based on voluntary labor. I mean, Gnomes was like that, right? Gnomes was completely based on voluntary labor. And obviously the community garden movement is pretty much like that too. These movements can suffer, you know, from the fact that people have to work and, and, and like their employment takes a lot out of them and they don't have extra time to do stuff. And I, th I think that's what happened for me when I, by the time I joined Gnomes, it was in steep decline. The people who were coming were people generally who didn't have gardens. Yeah, I mean, that was all right, but the people who didn't have gardens, like it was hard not to feel ripped off because we're all working on their garden. And even though you might take away a few plants every now and again, it wasn't it wasn't a substitute for going to, to buy your vegetables, really. And it's like that it, in a sense it, it was cutting time out of people's weekends and and often they've got other obligations on the weekend or they they just want to veg out. If, you've, if you work nine to five for five days a week, you, sometimes you just don't want to do anything that seems like work. In a sense, these are the in, in, inevitable problems of community group prefiguring experiments, which depend on voluntary work. And I don't think there's any general rule about what works and what doesn't work. But, you know, clearly, one I, I, I would say this, though, that in a sense, community gardens where people have their own plot and where you replace people who are not using their plots. I think that's a fairly viable format in, in, in suburbs in countries like Australia at the moment. And it's also got the added advantage of being transferable to to suburbs where people are mostly working class or poor or whatever, you know, like the, the members of the household who do have spare time can invest their time, some of their spare time in, in, in working a small plot. You know, and then and if they they get bored with that or they just can't cope with it anymore, someone else comes in and takes their plot. So I, I quite like that format. And then, of course, what I talk about a lot in the book is not is not those kind of um, voluntary, no money kind of collectives. I talk about what I call hybrids of capitalism and and, and the gift economy. A classic it's a community supported agriculture farm. So on the one hand, people have to be paid enough to secure their involvement in that farm. On the other hand, in a sense, they to, to, to make it worth the while for consumers to, to come out to the farm and collect their vegetables box and only get the vegetables that, that are in season and all that, you have to downprice the vegetables to the point where they're com competitive, at least competitive with supermarkets and often they're a bit cheaper in terms of organic produce. You know, there, there are compromises and these these compromises can be more or less difficult for people and I talk about that in the book. So I, I really, uh, you know, I think this, this is sort of inevitable and I like the concept of hybrids of the gift economy and capitalism to express why um, why these things can be difficult, you know, and, and not, not necessarily to provide a solution but just to be a bit more clear-sighted about where the problems lie. Yeah, fantastic. And um, really do want to talk about the um, gift economy just a, a little bit down the 
track as well. Um, you dedicated a chapter on gender and colonialism. So one of my, I'm not going to say a red flag, but one of my beige flags <laughs> with some permaculture is its enthusiasm to encourage weeds, um, non-Indigenous fauna and ruminant animals into Australia. Like, for example, whenever I go to a national park or conservation area, there's always a sign saying how the land was managed by First Nations custodians before Europeans blundered in and destroyed everything, often via the misplaced desire to cut down everything and replace by sheep. And what you're seeing is actually not the original and it was actually logged and blah, 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 blah for sheep um, until the sheep farm failed. Uh, certainly in the um, Macedon area of Melbourne, the destruction of the Mernon via grazing for sheep ended up being massively destructive on so many levels. So I guess I'm just a little bit concerned that some in the permaculture movement, definitely not all, risk a repeat of the same mistakes of the past, but may believe it's different this time because the terminology and the politics are different. So um, what are your thoughts? Am I being too harsh? <laughs> yeah, well, thanks for that question. Um, clearly, permaculture has a very bad reputation in, in these, well, I wouldn't say very bad, but it has something of a bad reputation for spreading weeds into the environment and for being in favour of weeds. And I got that in some of my interviews with people who were on the margins of the permaculture movement, especially the interviews with, with Naima. You know, like I'm very ambivalent about that topic, to be honest. Um, I think it's very contextual. I'm, I, I certainly wouldn't deny that some permaculture people are into, uh, introducing weeds into areas where there are danger to the biodiversity of the pre-contact Australian suite of plants. And Naima's example is a good example of that, someone who wanted to plant schizolobium trees everywhere. And and it's like, yeah, in, in, in that context, the northern rivers of New South Wales, that's a plant that could kind of dominate the understory and, and become, and become a, a weed in that sense, like in the same way that you know, in that same area, um, camphor laurels are a huge weed problem. That said, I, I also kind of agree with David Holmgren's uh, analysis of this, which is that most areas of Australia that have been settled by, you know, the colonists, by white people, whatever, for a long time, a long period of time, the soil environment is really different to the pre-contact soil environment. And and so a lot of, a lot of the species that that colonise, you know, that, that come in as weeds and take over and so on are better suited to the way the soils have become than than the original suite of species. And so I kind of think you have to take that into account. Like, okay, so most urban backyards in Melbourne, for example, uh, are much more nutrient-rich than they would have been 200 years ago because people have been throwing their food garbage and, and, and their excrement to a degree, and if you go back far enough... In, into the into the soil and so consequently it's it's completely different kind of soil from what you would have had and and also there's a different kind of um pattern of of watering you know like because water's coming off roofs and into the garden and stuff that that normally would be taken up in a larger area you know like all of that and like and also i i kind of agree with david Holmgren's point that if you want to create a biodiverse environment, you've got to look at the situation, what's possible in terms of, of, of an effective and easy um, solution to a particular problem. You know, like, so, okay, so if you've read Peter Andrews' Natural Sequence Farming books, like he's into damming creeks, which have been eroded, you know, we've cleared the land for grazing and whatever, and then we've the creeks just got lower and lower and we've got these huge banks like this and the creek doesn't and he says well okay let's let's find the sort of choke points and we'll, we'll just allow the willows to get to romp ahead and then every now and then we'll chop them over with a chainsaw and they just fall into the creek and gradually we build up build the creek up to the point where it starts to flow out over the land and, and you know create moisture in the soils and everything like that then we've actually got a much more biodiverse environment which is much more conducive to, to a variety of species living in it. I don't think these arguments can be completely dismissed. And the other thing I'd be saying about it is I've worked on uh, with, with bush regeneration. When I moved to Newcastle, we moved to Wanji. On the, in the ridge above our house, like there was a 15 hectare park, which was amazing and beautiful and everything, but it's completely invaded by lantana and bitu bush. 
I mean, I was a, a leading member of a group which was intending to to kind of deal with that problem. And we're a, a voluntary group, probably six people, and we'd meet every month and spend all Sunday pulling out weeds. And every now and again, we'd get a sort of land land care or government sponsored work for the doll program or something to help us. What could I think about that? I mean, it was like, well, first of all, the nutrient levels were all really different from what they'd been when it was a natural bushland because cattle had been grazing on this, you know, for hundreds of years and had been cleared before and so on. The other thing that I found about it was that actually it is such a lot of work. If you think you can spray lantana and then just go away and, and come back and you'll get native bush, think again. Whether or not it's environmentally sound to be spraying Roundup is, is one question. But the other question is, you've done that and then like five years later, all the lantana springs up from the roots under the ground or from little seeds that have been dropped before and, and, and comes up again. I reckon you committed to 10 people showing up every every two weeks and forever to manage this piece of bushland. We need to look at the native original bushland of Australia as, as a gardening project. I take the fact that we're losing biodiversity and, and, that, and that's an issue, but, but I would also say that it's an aesthetic project. We're gardening. We want to try and maintain as much of this 1788 bushland as we can. And that takes a lot of work. And we need to put a lot of money and investment into it if we want to do it right. And, and these are pockets of Australia which we can maintain. We can't expect to... I can't see any conceivable post-capitalist future in which we exclude all weeds from, from most of Australia. That's my kind of feeling about it. I contribute to Australian Wildlife Conservancy. They have an approach to reintroducing native marsupials and birds. And that approach basically is to put up feral cat-proof fences. And it's like, again, you're looking at massive expense. It's not cheap to do that and maintain those fences. And, and I, I think this is a wonderful project and, you know, it's terrific, but it's like pocket handkerchief size in terms of the whole of Australia. I don't see any politically viable way of removing cats and foxes from Australia. There's no future in which native marsupials of the kind that there were pre-1788 roam free in the numbers that they used to have. You know, I'd like to have a bob both way. I both think it's it's viable and useful to try and preserve some pre-1788 landscapes, but I don't think it's like, I think it's a bit misleading to think that you can do it everywhere. Yes, and um, I used to be quite the Puritan until, you know, you see a sort of photos of, you know, post-bushfires and it was the properties that had a mulberry tree in front or behind the house that not only saved the house, but also a lot of the native plants too. So like anything in life, it's a lot more complex than <laughs> taking a, a, a dichotomous stance. I was just wondering very quickly if there was anything in the chapter of gender and colonization that you wanted to share briefly? I think it's a real danger point for the permaculture movement. In a way, it annoys me that this is happening in the sense that I think permaculture has been very effective in the global south in terms of project design. And that's partly because permaculture has tended to to emphasise local food provision for local people, whereas other projects have emphasised entrepreneurial success, usually without success. It, it worries me and I feel upset a bit that, that permaculture is being, you know, that a lot of people want to reject permaculture because of what they see as its colonialism. So my conclusion from that is not that those nasty anti-colonialists should go away. Not On the contrary, I think, I think permaculture needs to kind of work out a more sophisticated way of, of addressing these issues and changing to the, to meet the challenge of the of this critique uh, and that's what I try and do in that chapter suggest various things which are already happening in the permaculture movement which which could be stressed to to broaden the interest of permaculture I mean outside of the sort of middle class you know catchment if you like of, of for, for this alternative agriculture and environmental kind of way that it works at the moment and in terms of the um you know, tag of being a middle-class lifestylist thing, which I've often heard myself. Indeed, this is actually given to community gardens too, like the fact that if a community garden goes into a suburb, it increases the local land prices. And so the criticism is often levelled at the people doing these projects where I see something more 
nuance, in fact, that neoliberalism is sneaky and it's able to put a price tag into any good initiative like a community garden, raise the average price in the radius and eventually destroy the thing that raised the prices in the first place. Yes. And so I'm just wondering, this this also links back, I suppose, to, to your interviews on system change and permaculture. Should people be stepping back when criticising permaculture and see a more broader systemic failing happening? You know, is there a case where permaculture can't persist without the systemic change and vice versa as well? You know, they're both two sides of the same coin. Yeah, well, there there are a lot of issues raised by that. And I mean, like, I think it's important for permaculture people to acknowledge the extent to which permaculture is a middle class movement. It has outreach and, and, and considerable purchase in certain countries of the global south. So we should never forget that. But what, what I say, what I say in the book is that um, in a period of globalized neoliberalism, the wages of the working class in the rich countries have stagnated, or they're even in real terms, they're probably lower because of the house price increases and so on. The capitalist class is obviously increasing its its proportion of the ownership of, of wealth throughout the world. You know, at the same time, there is a middle class in the rich countries and 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 even in some of the global south that has an amount of discretionary wealth and and they're also uh, the middle class tends to be really well educated and i'm and i think it it makes sense for this middle class to try and deal with world problems in one way or another you know and they use their discretionary wealth to do to do that i mean even if it's taking a few years off work and and blockading a coal port or, or what they're doing is relying on the fact that they're not worried about where, where their next meal's coming from because they are part of that middle class. Um, and permaculture works on those same sort of things, you know, and there are people like, you know, Lockie in, in Newcastle who, who who does people's gardens. Well, he's mostly doing middle class gardens and he's doing the bush clocks of people who are middle class and so on. I think in terms of total system change, what this enables is us to try out models of, of what a post-capitalist society might look like. You know, the same thing with organic food. People who are buying organic food tend to be those who feel they've got plenty of disposable income and realise what the problems are of stock standard, you know, Woolworths food, whatever. Yeah, okay, that's all true. But also what we're doing through this is trying to emphasise and, and draw attention to these alternatives to the way capitalism's running at the moment and, and, and try out these alternatives and, and pioneer them. And I, and I think that's quite a vi viable and valid thing to do. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is that, yeah, permaculture really needs to reach beyond that middle class. And there are various ways to do that, which we know what they are. And, I mean, I'll be blunt and I'll say in, 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 in the rich countries, the way, the way forward seems to be community gardens. You know, it's trying to get councils and so on to, to let you develop a community garden, trying to get an income for the people who are kind of going to coordinate that community garden and, and get people in who can actually work with marginal communities to increase their, their nutrition through a proper community garden initiative. And, and that sort of thing's happening in like in the western suburbs of, of Sydney, in Chicago, in, in Detroit and so on like that, in Los Angeles and so on. This is what we should be supporting. That works. That's one of the things that works. There's a number of different strategies that I talk about in the book, but that gives an illustration of where I'm coming from with this. I really appreciate in the book and during this conversation, Terry, you've got a very kind of, again, in my opinion, um, measured, reflective way of um, answering the questions that kind of looks at the issue holistically and avoids like, necessarily taking a popular stance on those, depending on the side of the politics, which I personally find refreshing, which is why I'm really curious <laughs> on this next question. Um, so on the podcast, as um, you may know, we always raise population on this podcast. We try not to shy away from controversial issues. I remember on a past issue of uh, interview with David Holmgren, I did note that um, 
carrying capacity and population was one thing in the original permaculture manual by Bill Mollison that is, is the one thing that doesn't seem to be existing as much in the um, modern reiterations. And I note a couple of times in the book, you mentioned that you had some lengthy discussions on this topic with some of your interviewees. Um, so I was just wondering, within a permaculture movement, oh, yeah. are people as divided on this controversial issue as absolutely everyone else is? And do you have your own perspective? Yeah, I'm not sure how many of my interviewees um, talked about it, but certainly Kate Beveridge and, uh, um, raised it and Mark Brown at Purple Pear in, you, in The Hunter, they talked about it. Yeah, I and mean, from my point of view, like I totally endorse the, 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 the point of view that... Um, if we're looking at environmental damage, we, the, the rich, you know, like the disproportionately rich, the 1%, but also the ordinary affluent people of, of the rich countries, you know, like if, even the affluent working class and so on, you know, each one of them is using vast amounts of the, of the world's resources. And that when we go to, you know, rural India or rural Africa or whatever, we find people who are who, who, you know, in terms of the footprint measure and so on, you know, you're not using even their whole footprint, like, you know, like, so it's like the other thing, though, is that I, I, I don't think it's such a huge problem as everyone seems to think. I, I, it, it annoys me that this discussion gets conducted in the absence of the of what I think is by now totally obvious, which is that if if people have security in their old age, then they don't have to have lots of children to make sure that someone, at least someone's looking after them in their old age. That's one thing. And secondly, if you have a low death rate from diseases that can be controlled, then it's, again, you don't have to have vast numbers of children to make sure some of them survive into your old age. And, and the third thing is that we know, we know this, the correlations make it really clear that women's education is positively correlated with low, low population growth. In other words, the minute women get educated enough to decide that, you know, they want their children to do well and that they know how to use contraception and so on, they will do that and the population starts to fall. Um, lots of developing countries, well, in, Indonesia is the, the classic example of a developing country that control population through a, not through coercive measures like in China's one, you know, one child policy, but through a popular education campaign that had the slogan, you know, two is enough. So, so when people talk about it, it's like, you get you get it from both sides. Like I just find that you know the way it's normally put, it's pretty racist, and and it ignores the fact that certain developed you know global South countries have have been successful in dealing with population, and that it doesn't require coercive measures. That what it requires is social welfare measures. So yes, uh, perhaps the answer is not to be dictatorial on the issue, but um, you know assist people in accessing unmet demand and. Also, you know, transitioning in a way that having stable and lowering populations long term, convincing governments that that's actually an okay thing. <laughs> like, you know, you don't need staunch um, pronatalism. You don't need um, you don't need that fear around um, aging demographic crises as as what also you know goes goes on with much of the business community as well. Mm. Yeah. Now, Terry, I loved reading your vision of a degrowth future based around the gift economy. Um, I always invite guests to summarise their own vision for a post-growth future. So tell us why the gift economy is, from your perspective, the best way forward. I mean, partly it's just based on the, on the idea that, that alienated labour sucks. It's human nature to enjoy producing things and working and creating things. It's crazy that people are, are in class societies are forced to work at things that they don't like to do and then half of their products are taken away from them. The gift economy, which, which works without money, is based on the idea of voluntary collectives producing the things that they think are necessary and distributing them to the community which has expressed a need for, for for that stuff to be made for them, and you know, and, and making agreements or compacts, as Anita and Nelson calls them, to make this all kind of work. So there's that. That's the sort of moral kind of point of view. In terms of the environment, the the great advantage of the gift economy is that it doesn't matter how much you produce, you're not going to become wealthy in a gift economy, because your wealth doesn't depend upon producing stuff for the market, and you get more money through that, and then you you become wealthy. No. 
you produce stuff as gifts and your own wealth, your own material well-being depends upon the gifts of other people who are not not necessarily the people to so you could be making toothbrushes and and, and distributing them to other communities but your your need for for pop-up toasters coming from a completely different village who are making pop-up toasters and and providing them for your village it's like there's no advantage in producing an excess of stuff because it, it doesn't actually make you wealthy that's the first thing the second thing is that because people are involuntary collectives in their own communities, there's no status. What they get out of distributing stuff and producing stuff for other people is status and social approval and a feeling of, you know, a job well done and so on. They're not going to get that if what they're doing is destroying the environment. If you're using a method of producing toothbrushes which is causing environmental damage and you're giving that to a village 50 kilometres away, they're going to be going you're destroying our in, our global environment. And in any case, you're destroying your own local environment. What sort of gift is this? This is a poison chalice. We don't want to take that. And then in your own community, they're going to be going, you're, you're, you know, you're trying to get status over there with that community over there. And meanwhile, you're destroying our local environment. We'll just knock it off, you know, like calm down, take the weight off your brain, do something different. So, So a gift economy is like, a lot, of, a lot of the way people think about environmentalism is how we can stop people breaking environmental regulations and causing environmental damage. My answer to that is let's not have an economy which makes that a rational choice. That's the problem with a market economy. It's always a rational choice to market more, to sell as cheap as you can, to make as much stuff as you can, because that's just your source of well-being. You know, that's how you get your income. And so you're going to cut corners and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a cooperative or an individual capitalist firm or whatever, it's always the same. The market economy causes trouble with the environment. Great summary. Good end to a fantastic conversation and a formidable book. (laughs) Now, if people would love to buy Politics of Permaculture, and until we achieve a gift economy, we'll probably need to buy it in the meantime. You know what? This reminds me at the DI uh, Doing It Ourselves store that I used to um, be at a lot of times, and there's this pamphlet called um, How to Survive on Zero Dollars a Day, (laughs) and it costs $2. So (laughs) I often tell people, this is the last $2 you'll ever need to spend if if it does what it says on the tin. Anyway, anecdote aside, politics of permaculture, where can people find it? It's being marketed in Australia by by, uh, NIB Bookshop, New Internationalist Bookshop, by David Holmgren. So you just look up David Holmgren. And Richard Telford is another one in Australia, another distributor of permaculture books. Um, so there are three options. The other option is just go to the Pluto website and and order it. Also, I, I imagine on Amazon you'd be able to order it as well. And furthermore, if people wish to follow you and your work, where can they go and how can they say hello? Um, I'm on Facebook, so don't hesitate, Terry Lay, you know, like Melbourne, whatever. Don't hesitate to message me on Facebook. That'd be fine. Um, but also I've got an, uh, a website called gifteconomy.org.au. Well, fantastic. And it was also great to uh, reunite with you uh, yeah, once more, good Terry. Good to see you so, again. <laughs> thank you so much and um, see you around the traps. Thank you so much, Michael. It's terrific. I believe we all came to be here for a reason. To acknowledge the seniors, everything has a season. This season is warm, but it's bringing a storm and a burning urge for our journey to transform. But held in our hand at this grave intersection is a map of the passage for a clearer direction to a permanent culture. It's time we began it with some wise design to realign with the planet, share skills to rebuild our combined reliance, and with wild guidance redesign our diet, befriend energy descent and the change in climate, to grow forests of food and a finer environment. Permaculture at this tumultuous juncture is a superstructure that can plug the puncture. In a society of anxiety, confusion and greed, this really may be one solution we need to bring back our elements 
elementary essence of ethics And walk in earth care, people care, fair share epic Now's the time to embed it, while the temperature's tepid Let us rise as a choir beside the people who get it To guarantee that our future generations' lives Are provided the conditions they require to thrive Instead of being deprived of the tools to survive In a biosphere too defiled to revive So we invite you now to amplify the synergy Devise an inspired, distinctive soliloquy Combining with like minds an adaptable symphony Of radical simplicity, balance and symmetry Whatever your ability, we need your assistance In aid of reclaiming a stable existence Go summon your gift at this critical hour And deliver wherever they move and empower Welcome back to Postgrowth Australia podcast. We just talked to author Terry Lay on his new excellent book, The Politics of Permaculture, followed by the track Climate Movement from Formidable Vegetable. Over the three seasons of PGAP, permaculture-themed episodes have been a regular feature. There may be a bias here because I love food and gardening, but also because I believe that postgrowth thinking is a natural position for permaculturists to gravitate towards. But does this go both ways? Do economic reform and system change thinkers naturally gravitate toward permaculture? I'd like to hear from you for this one. (laughs) Contact PGAP and let us know your thoughts on permaculture and whether you'd like more episodes on this topic. More broadly, contact PGAP anytime on our contact page to let us know your thoughts on the podcast or the post-growth issue more broadly. You can subscribe to PGAP on our homepage and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. PGAP has succeeded so far through word of mouth. We are supported by Sustainable Population Australia, but do not rely in any form on corporate sponsorship. Therefore, your word of mouth will ensure that PGAP continues to herald the most critical issue facing humanity today. No pressure. (laughs) Till next time. Till then.